We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back. As we are journeying through the book of Luke, we are going to discuss today the the birth and early life of Jesus Christ, which is... um, a lot of times people just use this as a story around Christmas. You know, you gather your family around, and, and at least for me, this is what we did and what I do with my family is we read the Christmas story and we read through Luke chapter 2. Um, but there's so much more to this that goes behind the scenes that I think can be unraveled for us today as we go through this. And, and hopefully God will give me the grace to be able to um, open your eyes to be able to see some of the stuff that's, that's here, that he'll give me the words, and that he'll give you the eyes to be able to see it. And so we're going to get right into this. I'm, I've got a lot to go through for you to be able to digest and chew on. Some things I'll expound upon, some things I'm just going to kind of give you some tidbits for you to take deeper into the Word. Understand, as I talked about even in uh, the podcast through Luke chapter 1, that... Uh, my teaching style is not going to be one that if maybe this is your first time joining us and you're like, you know, what is this guy all about? My teaching style is, is more of an apologetic one. It's not meaning that I apologize for truth, quite the contrary, but that I uphold the truth and I teach you how to understand truth. I'm not one that's going to fill you up with stories and warm fuzzies and make you feel really good about yourself. I feel that that's flattery. I'm one that's going to teach you the basics of the Word of God to build a foundation so that He can begin building upon that foundation of a solid foundation of truth and begin unraveling um, and unveiling those things to your eyes. Um, And so I'm going to say things that are probably not going to be popular. I'm going to say things that are probably going to be countercultural. I'm going to say things that might not even be fit with orthodox Christianity of the day. And I'm going to challenge some of those things because it's what the text does. And so I'm going to go through and I'm going to show you some of these things even today. And and as we go through the book of Luke, you know, uh, I'll do that. So without further ado, we're going to get right into this because like I said, I've got a lot to cover. And I'm trying to keep this around, as I do on my podcast, about 30 to 45 minutes. That's my aim, typically, with every one of them, to keep it within that range. Sometimes it goes a little bit over, um, but it's all good. So, with this, he says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, all, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So right off the bat, we're going to find this concept of, even in Romans 13, when he talks about you know, obeying your governing authorities. Um, this is a concept, I think, that at least in America, we are floundering in, in understanding a biblical perspective and viewpoint of how we should obey our authorities, even when it goes against our wants, even when we think that our taxes are being, you know, outrageously given to us. They had that in Jesus' day, and Jesus answered that question, pay to it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If Caesar's asking for it, I will take care of you. I will miraculously give you the money that you need to pay for that if needed. Pay it. I think that we've floundered in that in the church. And, and, and part of that, at least in America, part of that is because the inception of America was founded upon insurrection. Um, we've kind of adopted that mentality and we think that somehow it's Christian. Even though in 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, you can look at many verses in Scripture. You're going to find that it's completely anti-Christ to be insurrectionists against your governing authorities. Unless they are causing you to disobey God directly of what it looks like to be a Christian, you obey them. You submit to them. And here we even see that principle that they could have said, I'm not going to go be registered. I'm not going to go do that. I'm not doing it. Uh Uh-uh. No, they did it. And you don't see that there was much grumbling about it. 
And we're going to see what all that involved in just a little bit. He goes on, he says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So all these Jews, they were going to go be registered because the um, Caesar Augustus had commanded that this registration be done. This wasn't even the authority over them in the sense that they're Jews, right? They're not Roman citizens, they're Jews. And the, the Romans came into their town, started telling them what to do, and what did they do? They honored it. Now, this has a lot of implications for us today, but I'm going to forego those implications to continue on in the text. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, I want you to understand this. Just kind of put yourself in their shoes just for a second. Step back and kind of, you know, if you need to, close your eyes. Obviously, if you're driving, don't do that. But I want you to think about it. Bethlehem was approximately 70, 75 miles away. And this was no thing that they just hopped in their car and they just said, Hey guys, let's go spend half a day and we'll go get registered and then we'll come back. No, this, this was a journey. That they had to drop everything that they were doing. Their crops uh, that they might have been tending to. Um, it, 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 does, it doesn't matter. They dropped everything. And they went. And the common uh, perception is, is that Mary was on a donkey. But it, it doesn't ever say she rode a donkey. That's just a visual perception of man that we've kind of instituted. Uh, but it never says anywhere in the text that she rode on a donkey. It, it just simply says that they went on this journey. Seventy miles of them walking to just go be registered. Man, I, I know many people who wouldn't even put a piece of cloth over their face because the governing authorities asked them to, simply because they didn't want to. And here you've got Joseph and Mary, who they dropped everything in their lives at the request of Caesar Augustus. And they traveled 70 miles, probably, I don't know how long it would take. I, I, I've looked it up before about how long a 70 mile journey would take on foot. But remember, she's pregnant. She's got child and she's actually pretty far along because she's about to give birth. So put yourself in their situation real quick. You've got Joseph who's having to take care of his pregnant wife who's probably about roughly nine months into this whole thing because she's about to be giving birth during their time of being in Bethlehem, which was prophesied. And she, they're walking 70 miles. Not on paved roads, nice little pathways, across terrain, mountainous areas, desert areas. Guys, this was, this was a challenge. And it was no easy feat. But they did it. They did it because it was what was going to be honoring to God. Now it's important to note that she was with child. We all know this. If you were following along with me in chapter 1. It's an important concept. Because it's about to be an important concept in verse 7. He says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Here's another common misconception. Though undoubtedly there was probably places in, in Bethlehem at this time that would have housed people as a lodging place, right? Even the word is kataluma, it's the Greek word there for inn. It just means lodging place or a guest chamber. Um, an eating place, even, if you will. Um, there would have undoubtedly been a, uh, inns at this area because, you know, certain times of the year, Jews would come from all over the world and they would come in. And so it was probably a lucrative business for them at certain times of the year. Um, however, what's more likely is that this wasn't like a hotel like we would think of today. More than likely, this was actually relatives. People that they would have gone to and said, hey, can we stay with you, you know, during this time of this registration? Aunts, uncles, you know, whatever it might have been. Second, you know, whatever. This more than likely was a place, not an inn like a hotel, but this was relatives. That they would have gone and that they would have tried to stay with um, in their guest chambers uh, until the registration was done. Then they would go back home. But because Mary was with child and they weren't married yet. There was no room for them. You see, oftentimes following Jesus and doing what the Word is asking us to do, what the Lord tells us to do, is sometimes we get misunderstood. Sometimes, you know, it costs us. Oftentimes it costs us. And I, and I think, and again, this is, 
This is not me having any definitive proof. I'm just saying like a percentage-wise. More than likely, this, these were relatives that he was trying to go stay with. And when Joseph and Mary showed up, they saw her with child. They knew that they weren't married. And it was a, a shunning. It was a, there's no room for you here. And so, um, whether they went into somebody's manger, or not in somebody's manger, in somebody's... Um, Oh, I guess, yeah, it says they laid them in a manger. I'm trying to think of what the area was where they would keep the animals. These were oftentimes under people's houses. This wasn't some barn that was outside the house like what we usually have today. Oftentimes in the Jewish culture, they would have their stables, their places of where they kept their animals on their bottom floor. And then their houses were built on top of that. And so this probably was a place in which Joseph and Mary went to. And the relative said, you're not welcome in here. Um, but you can stay down in the manger with the animals or in the, in the stable with the animals. That's where you can stay. And can you imagine, I mean, I've, I've had that before, actually. Um, <laughs> and I'm just now putting this together that God has kind of put me in that same position. And I've even kind of been frustrated about it after all these years. Not, not bitter or anything, but just kind of like, like, really? Um, we went to go visit my aunt and uncle one time and, um, up in Colorado and they had this big fancy house that was up there and we had some of our relatives that were there already um, and they were taking one of the guest rooms and, and so it was me and, and my wife and I think at the time we had a couple kids and so we go there and just wanted to go see them we were in, in Colorado for the time and, and you know we live in Texas and so obviously and so um, you know we wanted to go see them it was an hour away from where we were at and so we get there and, and they they were like, you know, we're warm and welcomed us. And then they say, you're not going to, you're not going to sleep on this first floor where the couch is or the, you know, carpeted area or whatever. And, and you're not going to stay in the guest room that we have on the second floor. Um, why don't you get your stuff and you come down to the basement where it's concrete floors and you guys are going to sleep down there. And we're like, oh, oh, okay. All right. Well, as we go and we lay out some sleeping bags and some blankets on the concrete floor. And, and while they're all up in the um, top of the house having their fun time, we're down in the basement. And there wasn't animals down there, unless you consider children animals, but uh, there wasn't animals down there. We didn't have to, you know, lay a, a newborn child and give the, you know, deliver. But we did feel like outcasts. We did feel like we were put out. We did feel like we were lesser than and almost kind of like a shameful type thing. And like, really? And so in a way, in a small degree, I can kind of relate to Joseph and Mary. They're being put out of even relatives' homes and they're being told, no, 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 you, you get down in this, in this stable area with the animals and that's where you're going to give birth and lay your child. How, how seemingly heartless is that? And yet, it's what God had ordered. It's what God considered was the best for them and for his own son. And I think there's a picture there that understand that when you follow Christ, you're not going to be considered the, the wealthy. You're not going to be considered the, the upper echelon of society. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that we are looked at as the scum of the earth, the refuse, the refuse of all things. And he says, so I urge you, imitate me as I imitate Christ, who was born in a lowly manger. He was born in a stable area with, with the creatures. Because it wasn't seemed good enough for him to be born among relatives up in the house. And I want you to get to, to have that picture painted in your mind. Because too often today I think that for some reason we think that because we're God's children that we're going to be better treated in this life than what Jesus was. Just think about that. Because if you looked at the early church and you took a good, hard look at the early church and at the apostles and their lives, they were treated like Jesus was. They were outcasts. They were considered the scum of the earth. They, they were people who were not liked and loved and held, held upper, upper echelon positions in the world. They were the outcasts. They were the ones who suffered with Christ outside the camp, as Hebrews 13 puts it. And so I want you guys to just kind of picture this and understand what's going on here. And, and going on, it goes on in verse 8. He says, 
And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. I want you to understand something, too. Shepherds were considered a very lowly position, um, similar to fishermen. It was not an upper echelon position. And, and I want you to see what God has kind of ordered here. He allows his child to be born in a stable area and laid in a manger. He, he allows the parents of this child to have to go through some of what they went through um, on their journey to get here, to be in Bethlehem, the house of bread, as it's translated, so that the bread from heaven can be born in that house of bread, um, which is a whole crazy story that goes into that, a prophecy and, and seeing the fulfillment of Christ and what all that means. And then he appears to shepherds. He doesn't appear to the kings. He doesn't appear to the people who would hold that upper echelon um, societal positioning. He appears to shepherds and he says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. And the reason that he says that is, is not because he's saying, no, you don't need to fear. No, they were right in fearing. Just like when he says that we need to fear God, you are right in fearing God. Anyone who tells you otherwise and says it just needs to be a healthy respect or a reverence for him, does not know God the way that they should. We are called to fear him even with trembling. Philippians 2.12 says that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians 5.11 goes on to say that because we will give an account for everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil, that we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in verse 11, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, then we persuade others. And even in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he says the exact same thing. Bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. You are commanded to fear him. And it is a right reaction that phobios is the Greek word. It means there should be a phobia of who God is in a sense. You know who he is. Just as at Mount Sinai when it says that not even a beast could touch this mountain, Right? Or anyone who does is going to die. The, the, the sight was so terrifying, they trembled, that not even a word would be spoken to them at the presence of God. But you can never let that healthy fear of who he is get in the way of listening to a message that he has for you. And I think that's what the angel is stating here. They were right to fear. But then he says, fear not. Don't let that fear stand in the way of listening to what I have to say to you. So he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people, not just Jews. This isn't going to be just for the Jews. This is going to be for Jew and Gentile, all people everywhere. This is the good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to be born so that he could die and be the perfect sacrifice so that he could redeem whether Jew or Gentile. All people now have the same access to get to God through him. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. See how God had appointed his own son, his child, to be born in this manger? Just as he treated Jesus, so he will treat his children. Don't expect to be treated better than Jesus. He goes on, he says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now that is a whole study in itself about that. I I recently, even just as yesterday, had heard that God's kindness is unmerited. Now unmerited is is a term that you won't find in scripture. Um, You won't even find it in the Strong's or the Thayer's Concordance. It's something that man has simply applied, applied, To certain terms, like his grace is unmerited favor, Um, his kindness is unmerited, meaning that you cannot do anything one way or the other to earn his kindness or to lose his kindness. And and I would refute that with scripture. You look into 1 Corinthians 10, I want to show you that God didn't have too much kindness for the people who abused him. You got to look at Hebrews chapter 10 and 26 through 31 when he says, if we, the author includes himself, says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That doesn't sound like God's kindness 
even towards believers. You see, God's kindness is not unmerited, nor is his grace in its fullest form. Are there aspects to where grace was unmerited? Absolutely. Prior to our salvation, we did nothing to earn for God to send Jesus to be an atonement for us, for God to send Jesus to be the access point for us to get to him. We did nothing to earn that, quite the contrary on that. But you cannot say that his kindness is unmerited and his grace is unmerited as its most basic general definition because it's just not accurate with the text. And here we see it says that with those whom he is pleased, those are the ones that get the peace. As Philippians 4, 7 through 9 talks about, or you could even go back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26, 3, he says that he keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. See the condition? If your mind isn't stayed on Jesus, then you won't be in perfect peace. If you don't think about and do the things that are honorable and excellent and praiseworthy or worthy of praise, then the, God, the peace of God will not be with you. That's what Philippians 4, even New Covenant, says. His peace is with those who please him. Going on, he says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem, again, the house of bread, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just as God had said. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, meaning to Mary and Joseph. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And here's the question I want to ask you real quick, because my wife and I were talking about this on our walk the other day after a discussion we had in something called our journey group, which is just a, a small group of people that you meet with on a weekly basis that's part of our church. And um, in retrospect of some of the things that were talked about in that, you know, we were talking about the Jews and, and just some of the things there and why they celebrated Passover today, meaning like why do, do many Jews celebrate Passover? And, and one of the things that we talked about was that it just is tradition. Um, there, you know, I can imagine that when parents told their children right after their deliverance from Exodus and the Passover had passed over them, right, to, to not kill their firstborn, um, I can imagine that, that there was passion in their voice, a heartfelt, even tears declaration of what God had done for them. And when they celebrated the Passover, it was like, this is what God has done for us. And we want to pass this down to you. And somewhere along the lines, it just became tradition. We do it because that's just what we always do. There's no passion, no treasure. No treasuring up those things to many people. In the same way as in the church. When we fellowship together, we don't just do it as a checklist. We do it because it's the presence of God coming among his people to edify us, to enlighten us, to fill us more with the spirit to, to be able to serve one another and love one another. And that, that koinonia, or that's the word for fellowship often in scripture, that koinonia that we get to share is, is a beautiful thing. And somewhere along the lines in the church, it's just became a duty. It's just become tradition. And we no longer treasure these things up in our heart. It's no longer a treasure for many people who would claim the name of Christ to attend church in the same way with many Jews. It's just... We keep the Feast of Booths because that's what we've always done. We keep the Passover because that's what we've always done. Yom Kippur. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's what we do. It's who we are. But there's no treasuring. And, and it struck me as when it said that Mary had heard these things and it says that she treasured them up in her heart. And I'll ask you, listener, do you treasure the things of Christ? Or is it more so just a checklist that you do? When you open the word of God, do you treasure that time? Like truly treasure that time as you would just being able to go spend some time with your kids if you're a parent. Would you treasure that time each morning that you get to open your eyes and you get to sit down and open up your Bible? Do you treasure that time? Even being able to listen to this podcast, do you treasure this and say, man, I, I am so appreciative that I, I get to hear the word of God. I get to have somebody maybe expound it to me in ways I've never heard before. You treasure your prayer time. You treasure your time of getting to go to church and fellowship with other believers. It's just a question of self-reflection. You need to ask yourself, 
It says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told of them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And this was according to the law. On the eighth day, the, the, the child was to be circumcised. And so they were fulfilling the law in this, and they had to, in order for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice under the law, he had to have fulfilled the law and be the fulfillment of it. One of the other things I want you to see is it says that before he was conceived in the womb. Now, this is a clear um, biblical text that would state that life begins in the womb. The conception of life begins in the womb. Now, for all you pro-lifers out there who would join me on this, this is one of those things that if you are a Christian and you say that you are pro-choice, and I'm not going to make a big deal of this, but your, your argument oftentimes is life doesn't actually happen until the baby comes out of the womb. This would contradict that. This, the biblical text, the word of God says that conception or life takes place in the womb. Now I'm just going to leave that there for you guys. Um, because I'm not going to make the text about this. Because I don't believe the text makes it about it. However, it is a very point blank statement that the text makes. And we have to heed that. Now going on he says, And when time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now let me break this down real quick. In Leviticus chapter 12. You're going to find the purification rituals for a firstborn child, whether that be a daughter or whether that be a son. There was 33 days, which I think is interesting because Jesus ministered for 33 years. Uh, but there's 33 days of purification. All right. So for the woman, when she has a, a male son, there is an eight-day period in which on the eighth day they circumcise. And then there's these 33 days that must take place before she can really do anything. And it's not just a healing, it's a purifying. It, it's the, the purifying um, requirement under the law of Moses for the woman to, to be purified from that blood. And so for a woman or for a daughter, it was 66 days. Um, don't ask me, I guess, why there's the distinction between the two and why it's exactly double. I don't know. There might be a scientific reason, but I, I don't know personally. All I know is that the law said 33 days. So that's what it's referencing when it says it came time for their purification. According to the law of Moses, they went up, they presented him to the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice on behalf of this child. And here's the interesting thing. It should have been a lamb if they had the money. But it says in the law, in Leviticus 12, if you don't have the lamb, if you can't afford the lamb, if you are a poor family and you don't have the ability to sacrifice the lamb because you just are not financially able to, then you can offer the poor man's offering. Turtle doves and pigeons. So here I want you to see, Jesus was born in a stable. The King of kings and the Lord of lords left his throne, came down to earth, and he was born in a stable. And then you had the lowly position of the shepherds who came and glorified him. And then you have his parents who were poor people offering the poor man's sacrifice. Because I want you to, to take this in and to understand that when God comes in you, just as, he, just as God sent his son into this world, do not expect to have royal treatment. Don't expect to be treated better than Jesus. He goes on, he says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. As I said, in order to be the the perfect sacrifice under the law, Jesus had to fulfill the requirements of the law, which is why the righteous requirement of the law has now been fulfilled and even ended in Christ for those who believe. And so going on in this one, you see that in the spirit, here's this man, Simeon, who comes in and he's uh, adoring God and praising God that this light of the world had now been born and his eyes had now been able to see it and he can die in peace knowing that the word of the Lord was fulfilled in his life. And he got to see the light of the world. He got to see the one who is going to be the redeemer for both Gentile and for Jew. That he came to the house of Israel for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That would open a doorway for the Gentiles to find inclusion. And don't get me wrong, uh, or don't get the text wrong. This in no way is saying that the Jews are still God's people. This is a super big hot topic for me and one that was in our journey group conversation last night and it was very difficult for me to bite my tongue and to not say some things that I wanted to and go through the word and expound upon it. But let me just tell you real quick, the Jews are no longer God's people. They're not even on the team, if you will. Do they still serve a purpose? Absolutely. They have a role to fulfill in the end times. Are they still loved by God? Absolutely. Romans 11 talks about it where it says that they are still beloved. Are they still able to come into salvation? Yes, but only through Jesus Christ. Luke 13 says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. For until you... See me, or until you say that I am the Son of God, until you say, this is what he's meaning, if you, until you say I'm the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the Lord, you will not ever see me again. And right before that, he talks about it, he says that Jews are going to be sitting, they're going to get to heaven one day and stand before God, and they're going to see Gentiles reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're going to say, uh, uh, hey, what about us? And he's going to say, you're not getting in. You're on the outside. You ain't getting in. And they're going to say, but you came into our streets. We're the Jews. You came to us. You came to our streets and you taught in our streets. That's got to count for something. He's going to say, nope. You ain't getting in. The Jews are not God's people. Israel is not God's territory any longer. That covenant and that association died with the old covenant when it died on that cross. The Jews are no longer God's people. Christians are. The church. The body of Christ. And if you don't come in through him, he is the only way, the truth, and the life. And you do not come to God but through him. If you do not come in Jesus Christ, you are not considered his people. Please understand that and stop trying to unite with Israel and begin uniting with the beloved of God, the body of Christ, the church. Because we are the heavenly Jerusalem and we are the ones who have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have got to stop looking at things through a natural lens because to a person who sees scripture with a natural lens... The things of God are folly to you and you will not understand them. And so it goes with those who are dispensationalists who think that the Jews are still God's people. Does he still have a plan for them? Yes. Does he still want them to be part of his kingdom? Yes. But it will only come through Jesus Christ. The only ones who are considered children of God right now are those who belong to Christ. The only ones who will be children of God on that last day are those who have found in Christ on that last day. If you are outside of that, I don't care what your lineage is. I don't care how pure your lineage is. I don't care if it goes back to David. I don't care if you're traced all the way back to Abraham. You will not get in. You are not God's people. The only way to be his people is to be in Christ, in which he shows no partiality and no distinction between Jew or Gentile. So don't misunderstand the text. This is talking about pre-death of Christ. That God came to his people through, the, through sending Jesus Christ. And through that will come the redemption of the Gentiles as well. Alright, 
Hopefully, with that understood, I could go in depth on that, but I don't want to. Just understand that it's a hot topic for me, and it's one that I take very seriously, and here's why. is because it elevates the Jews to a place of equal standing or even greater than Jesus Christ. To say that the Jews are his people still is to minimize and diminish and even slander the person of Jesus Christ. Because you're saying that you can still be his people outside of Jesus Christ. And I just don't see scripture teaching that. So be very careful with your words. Don't don't believe for one bit that the Jews are still God's people. They have the opportunity, just like anyone else, to come in. But it will only be through Christ. He goes on, he says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, in the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. And that... That is a godly woman. I want you to to think about this because this is foreign to many people today. Then as a widow until she was 84. We don't know exactly the timeline that was there. What we do know is that she was faithful to her husband while he was alive. From the time that she was a virgin and her being with her husband, it said it was seven years. And, and whether that meant that he died at that point, I, I don't know exactly what this is stating. I think it's a little bit um, murky to try to establish that. What we do know is that until the time she was 84, at some point there was a length of time where she was a widow. And here's what she did. She lived with her husband while he was alive. But then after he died, here's what she devoted herself to. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That was what she devoted herself to. She did not depart from the temple. She stayed there, worshiping, fasting, and praying night and day. She committed herself to that. That's a faithful woman. Most women today, if you're a widow, and I'm not saying that this is wrong. First Timothy 5 talks about that it's not necessarily wrong. It just might not be the better portion. As 1 Corinthians 7 talks on. Because Paul says, yet she would remain, she, it's better to remain a widow. But the point is, is that many people today, that if you don't have a significant other, you feel like you're invalidated, you feel like you're lesser, you feel like you don't have a place. But this, this woman, she wasn't seeking a husband. Her husband had died, and I'm sure that that was tragic, and I'm sure that it was tough. But she committed to devote herself to God. And until she was 84 up to this point, she didn't leave the temple. She worshipped, and she prayed, and she fasted every day. She wasn't out looking for another spouse. Today, we put too much of an emphasis on having a significant other. We put too much of an emphasis on making sure that we, we're, we're dating or we have somebody because it's an identity crisis that we say. She didn't face that because she knew her identity was found in God. So she didn't need to have another person. And I want you to wrap your mind around that because that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about. Is it sin to marry? Absolutely not. Is it sin to desire that? Absolutely not. But is it sin to let that desire be greater than your desire to be found in Christ and letting that be our identity? Absolutely. And it says, this is what she says, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now here's what's interesting in this redemption of Jerusalem. They were looking for a physical king to come like Moses did and to deliver them from the tyranny of Egypt. For them, it was the tyranny of Rome. They were looking for somebody to come in. And when Jesus wasn't going to deliver them from Rome, they branded him a blasphemer and killed him. The Son of God, the one who came for the redemption of their soul, the one who's going to bring redemption not for Jerusalem, but for the soul of the tyranny of the great oppressor, that is Satan, the one who owns rights to your soul because you're born in sin. Jesus came to redeem us from him. 
But the Jews, they missed it because they thought he was coming to redeem them from a physical tyranny. And they missed it because they were naturally minded. They didn't see the spiritual redemption that was taking place. They didn't see the fact that as Hebrews 12 even says, we as the church are the heavenly Jerusalem. He did redeem us. He did take away the tyranny. It was just a spiritual redemption, not a physical one. And they missed it because they were looking to the physical. Same way as I just talked about, if you're thinking that Jesus is, that, that Israel is God's people, the Jews are God's people, and God's going to miraculously protect Israel, I'm sorry, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're looking for a physical temple to be rebuilt, I'm sorry, you're looking for the wrong place because Ezekiel tells us that there's going to be a temple where the Spirit of the Lord dwells and the glory of God rests upon. And if you analyze that temple, you're going to find that that temple is in the perfect construction of a cross. Years before the Romans even took over and instituted a cross of torture. This temple was in the perfect imagery of a cross. And exactly where the hands of Jesus would have been. Is exactly where the blood was commanded to be sacrificed. And exactly where the side of Jesus would have been on this cross. It says that blood and water flowed from the altar. Let me just tell you guys. If you're looking for a physical temple to be rebuilt. You're looking in the wrong place because I'm going to tell you it already has been established. And it was the death of Christ our Lord. That's the temple. That's why he says now, not future tense. He says now, we are the temple of the living God. Don't look for the physical and don't look for Jesus in the physical. Because oftentimes he's not there. Just as the disciples went to that empty tomb and they were looking for the body of Jesus and the angels declared, he ain't here. He's up in heaven, right? At just at that time, he wasn't necessarily there. He was in the spiritual realm, but he wasn't necessarily in heaven at that moment. But guys, I'm just telling you, don't look for, the, for Jesus in the physical. Look for him in the spiritual because that's where you're going to find him. The spiritual temple, the spiritual priesthood, the spiritual sacrifices, the spiritual Jerusalem. Those are all the things in which Christ dwells. And if you're looking in the physical, you're probably looking in the wrong place. It goes on, it says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and favor of God was upon him. I want you to think about this. They journeyed back those 70 or 75 miles to their hometown, on foot more than likely, with an infant. Mary had given birth, it was probably about a month and a half to where they had forsaken everything that they knew, right? Their lives and as to go be registered and they probably didn't expect fully that their life was going to be turned upside down quite like this when they got there. Maybe they thought they had more time and they would be able to get back and have the child. But they were gone at least probably a month and a half. Crops might have died. They might have had people who tended to. I don't know. What I do know is their life got turned upside down because they chose to obey God. And yours will too. But they made this trek all the way back with an infant. Many people don't even want to drive 15 minutes to go to church. Drive. These people, to heed the word of God, to obey God and to be pleasing to him. They uprooted their life. And on the way back, they even added an infant to it. Just put that in perspective next time you want to grumble about having to drive to church. Or next time you want to grumble about having to miss work because you are going to church. Man, we got to get our hearts adjusted and start treasuring up the things of God once again. It goes on, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. What I think is fascinating. The, the greatest teacher of all time, the Son of God who is filled with the Spirit even from his womb, right? Born of the Holy Spirit, I should say. He was listening to the Pharisees and asking them questions. He wasn't just sitting up there teaching them as we would suppose a teacher would do. He was listening and asking. 
And I think that that's fascinating. Let alone the fact that his parents found him after three days and Jesus came to his children after three days. I just think that's a fascinating thing that it's that circular type thing that's gone on where his parents searched for for their child after three days, not knowing where he had gone. But then Jesus came to his children after three days when they didn't know where he had gone. I just think that that's a fascinating concept. Now notice he's only 12 years old at this time. In Jewish tradition, in custom, he wasn't considered a man until he was 13, which means that he was still under his father's leadership. He was still needing to submit to his father. But once he became 13, while he still needed to honor them, he didn't necessarily have to submit to them because now he's considered a man, a man who needs to go out and live his own life. Now, don't think that if you're a 16, 17-year-old American teenager who's been accustomed to playing video games his entire life, that you are actually a man, simply because Jewish custom said at 13 that you were. By the time you were 13 as a Jewish man, you already knew what it was like to tend to a garden. You already knew what it was like to build a home. You already knew what it was like to survive and how to take care of other people. Because oftentimes, you were responsible for taking care of your younger siblings. You already knew these things. You knew what hard work was. You knew how to survive. Most, at least in America, most teenagers who get to 13, all they know is video games and schoolwork. They don't know the first thing about how to tend to a family. And so don't, get, don't, don't think that if you turn 13 that you don't have to be submissive to your father anymore. No, that's something that's typically earned. Is when you become trustworthy. And so in this one you see this. And it's important because he goes on. He says, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house or about my father's business? See, he's sending them a clear message to let them know, look, I want you to keep the proper perspective because technically you're not my father. I have one father who is in heaven. That's my father. Hallowed be his name. However, he was still only 12. And according to the law, he still had to submit. So what did he do? Did he stay in the temple? Did he say, I'm not going to listen to you? I'm not going to obey what you're telling me to do? No, that's not what he said. He never disobeyed them by staying in the temple being about his father's business. But when they asked him to come, listen to what it says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart also. You see, they didn't understand what he meant when he says that I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. They didn't understand that. But Jesus, being only 12, still under the law, needing to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, when they asked him to come, he submitted. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And this goes into what I was talking about. That word for grace or favor in Scripture is the Greek word charis. And it's the one that is always used for grace. And it's the one that's used here when it says that he increased in wisdom and in stature or years in age. And in favor with God and man. Let me just ask you this. How can we increase in charis or grace or favor if it has nothing to do with us in the first place? If grace is just completely unmerited and it has no hinging on us whatsoever, one way or the other. And it doesn't increase, it doesn't increase because it just is. It's unmerited favor. It cannot increase and it cannot decrease. Because it has nothing to do with you. You have no ability to increase it or decrease it. Then how did it increase for Jesus? How is it that if that's the case, if it's an unconditional, unmerited favor, how is it that Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 talk about make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? How can anyone fail to obtain it? How can I even be responsible for it if it's not on me? How can 2 Corinthians 6.1 say anything about make sure that you don't receive grace in vain if it has nothing to do with me? See, the point is, guys, is that there's been some um, perceptions and even statements that man has made that has just been false 
because it's adding to the text something that it doesn't actually state in the fullness of what the text says. The reality is, are there aspects of grace being unmerited? Sure, I won't deny that. God's kindness, while we were sinners, while we were not doing what we should have been done, God's kindness was given to us. It was, it was His hand was open to us in kindness and mercy, and we didn't deserve it. So is it unmerited in that aspect? Absolutely. But is it its most basic definition that's an all-encompassing generalized definition? No. Because grace is so much more than that. Even in 1 Peter 5, 5, it talks about it in in the latter half of that verse where he says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That means that you have to do something to get grace. He gives grace, not unmeritedly, but to the humble. Those who are willing to humble themselves before the mighty hand of God, God says, you're the one I'll extend grace. So let me just give you the basic definition of grace. This is the one that covers everything. This is the one that includes the unmerited favor that was shown to us prior to us being saved. This is the one that shows what grace truly is, is that power from heaven for us to achieve that which formerly was impossible. That's what grace is. The enabling power of heaven That enables us to achieve that which was formerly impossible. That's grace. And if you want that reckoned to your account, the access is given to you. But if you want it reckoned to your account, there's two requirements. One, you must believe. And I'm not saying you must believe in Jesus um, as just a a barometer of whether or not you're going to get it. That's part of it. But we are saved by grace through faith. Which means that God extended grace to us and to have it reckoned to our account for salvation, you must believe in Christ. But living out our daily lives, it goes beyond just a faith in who Jesus was. And it goes into a faith in who He is. What He's capable of for those who believe. The other one, outside of faith, is humility. Those are the two requirements that you must do in order to earn that grace being applied to your account. This is what the text says. We can either accept it or we can reject it. Just as truth always has been. You can either accept it or reject it. But I'm going to tell you, in that apologetic aspect that I was talking about in the very beginning, I will challenge orthodox teachings today if they do not jive with scripture. And this is one of them. Grace is not, in its generalized definition, unmerited favor. In fact, like I said, you won't find unmerited anywhere in Scripture. You won't find it anywhere in the Strong's or the Thayer's when it defines grace. Favor? Sure. Not unmerited. The definition of grace is the enabling power of heaven to enable us to achieve that which formerly was impossible. But for those who believe and who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God to do what he's asking us to do and believe that he can do it in us. So hopefully this was a encouraging and enlightening chapter for you, podcast over this chapter. We're going to get into chapter 3 and it's probably going to be very similar because it's also a longer one. However, there is some genealogy stuff in which it goes into, I believe, Mary's genealogy. Um, yeah, Mary's lineage that goes back into even Adam and Eve, but also goes through David. And so, with that said, we will get into chapter 3 in the next podcast. So you all be blessed.